Hello, this is the Atlanta Storytellers Podcast. My name is John Carr. There are so many great literary shows, poetry shows, and storytelling shows here in Atlanta. So many amazing artists producing incredible work that lives and sometimes dies at these performances. This podcast is designed to capture that work and share it with the rest of the world. And so, here are some of those stories. My name is Benjamin Carr. This piece is called It Just Is, and it was originally performed at a show called True Story. The first thing I ever was was Joanne's baby. When they thought I might not live the first few hours past birth, Joanne just marveled at how tiny I was. When the doctors told her and Dawn that I might have brain damage, she was just grateful that Atlanta had gotten a CAT scan machine a few weeks before and that they wouldn't have to shoot dye in my brain in order to run tests. There's always something good to see, even in bad situations. Joanne always perseveres, so her thinking was that I might as well just persevere too. And the CAT scan results were good. Nothing appeared wrong. So I spent the first few months of my life just being Joanne's baby, and I was darn good at it too. She kept telling me so, that I was a cute baby, and that I was a smart baby, that I was a special baby, and that I was the best baby. She'd do stretches with me in my crib, pulling my arms and legs out straight and up and over my head. Most importantly, she kept singing me songs. The first song she ever taught me was Old MacDonald. At six months old, I would sing back to her on pitch, E-I-E-I-O, whenever she'd sing it while holding me. Apparently, it caused something of a stir at church that Joanne's baby could sing back to her. Joanne says she'd pass me around from person to person, that everybody liked holding me, and that I'd sing for them at her prompt. I could sing before I could crawl. It's significant that my first song involved farming, because my mother grew up on a farm in Paulding, Ohio. Corn, wheat, and soybeans. She was the middle child of Merle and Glendine Jeffrey's three girls. The Jeffrey girls would sing all the time at Paulding Methodist. Even when Joanne got sick with the measles in the sixth grade and lost some of her hearing, she still sang beautifully and loved music. In high school, her senior year, she was both in the choir and drum majorette in her marching band. The girl could twirl a mean baton. And there's a photo of her in the yearbook doing just that. Like her two sisters, she went to Bowling Green State University. Like her two sisters, she studied to be a music teacher. Like her sisters, she got married. My mother was raised, she said to me, with a very clear path on how to be a good person with clear goals and a fulfilling happiness. She told me this in a recording booth at StoryCorps. Her upbringing sounds very regimented and a little strict, not completely strict though she did mention that she once chased a rooster around the house and killed it its name was brownie she did not elaborate she was given very clear guidance toward happiness and success by her mother there was a plan and everything was going according to that plan in joanne's life until her husband don didn't much like being a history teacher took a job in insurance and took them to hartford connecticut then florida then atlanta by 1973 her mother was so upset when she left Ohio that she cried until her face bled. 
So guilt trips are not as bad as whatever my mother had to face. I came along when Joanne and Don lived in Atlanta, and I do not fit a plan. I was Joanne's baby who could sing but couldn't crawl, and when I finally did crawl, much later than the book said I should, I dragged my left leg behind me a little bit. She took me to a pediatrician named Dr. Nicholson, who was very funny and very nice to me. He told her that I might have cerebral palsy. I asked her during our StoryCorps talk how she reacted to that news, and my mom said something to me that she repeated all that day whenever we talked about the obstacles we'd faced. It just is. She said she could tell it was minor. She knew that I was a smart baby because of the singing, because of the cute and the happy. It was brain damage, and it wasn't going to go away. But Joanne was not devastated. It just is. Sometimes God gives us something, and it leads us down a path different from our plans. Sometimes a challenge is just God giving us an opportunity to show off how strong we could be. We're not designed with subtlety, my mother and I. Joanne was a music teacher who could sing and direct church choirs while facing increasing hearing loss. I was a brain-damaged toddler who could read and sing before he could crawl. It just is. You do your absolute best with what you're given. There are no barriers. My mother taught me that. I was in Eggleston when I was three, having a surgery that required them to put me into a double leg cast with a two-foot bar separating my legs for several weeks. I couldn't move on my own, and I looked like a giant letter A. Luckily, though, my mom had me watching lots of PBS by then, Sesame Street, The Electric Company, and The Letter People, so my double leg cast was just another teaching opportunity. My parents hauled me around in a red wagon from appointment to appointment. Sometimes my dad carried me upside down like a suitcase. I said hello to everybody who stared, and doctors told her that I was the most socially well-adjusted CP kid they'd ever seen. I was friendly to everybody. I was sweet. I was loud. And I never stopped talking. And it hadn't gotten on anyone's nerves yet. That came later. From years of seeing how my mother reacts when people yell at her instead of speaking clearly or get annoyed at her increasing hearing loss that apparently worsened in the 80s when she worked in real estate, when people think that she's just being difficult or thinking that volume somehow affects your ability to hear, I now know how to deal with cruelty and idiots. You do it head on. You combat idiotic snarkiness with better, wittier snarkiness. You keep moving past all the jerks, and you don't let anyone stop you ever from getting what you want. I know what battles to choose. My mother has been my champion when I've faced adversity, and she taught me to not to put up with crap from anybody. She made me into my own champion. Joanne directed the children's choirs at church. She had me sing in the choir like she had. Through that, I learned that Jesus loves me, that Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham, and that if you're happy and you know it, you clap your hands. She believes that music is of the soul. She taught me that the right words, sung the right way, can mean something deep. She taught me to use my voice, that people should hear it. 
She taught me to love music, and music helped me understand words, rhyme, communication, meaning, poetry, and stories in all the ways that they could be told or shown or understood. She was a music teacher and a darn good one. She put me on a stage, and she taught me how to belong there. She said, even Bambi had wobbly legs when he was on the ice, and everybody loves Bambi just the same. Now I take stages because of her. Every good, everything good that I am comes from her. My mom just retired. She reads what I write, and she hears recordings of my stories, and she tells me that I should just be funny. People like it so much better when you're funny. So I'm funny even when it's serious. I wanted to write something happy, something true, something funny, and something fun. And so I wrote this for her. During our StoryCorps talk, my mom asked me a question that at the time stumped me. She asked me what makes me happy, and I didn't have an answer. I do now. My mother makes me happy. And she taught me how to be happy, just like she taught me songs. And I'm happy. And I know it. So say amen. My name is John Good. I am a writer of all things, poems, stage plays, TV commercials, ransom notes. This uh, poem is called The Talk. I wrote this about a conversation my father and I had when I was roughly 12 years old where we sat down to discuss uh, very interpersonal things you would imagine your parents did to and with each other, which is a very creepy thought. And at the age of 12, I was a very nerdy child, so I felt like I had more information on the subject than he had. So when he said, Jonathan, let's sit down, let's have the talk, I said, yes, sir, let's sit down. There's some shit you need to know. So this is that poem. Pop walked slowly into the room pulled up and sat down on a stool. I just turned 12. He turned to me and said, well, you're going to be a man soon. In the coming years, months, and weeks, you're going to get off into these streets and try to do some of the things a man would do. So let me be clear. I want to speak to you here about some of the things a man should do. It's time for me and you to have the talk. Now, I did not buck nor balk. I've been waiting for this, nay, praying for this day. I read some books that dealt and took some notes and felt like I knew everything he was about to say. I read some pleasing words about the bees and birds. I dialed some numbers I shouldn't have, charges and fees incurred. I'd chosen my own adventure. I'd read some penthouse forums. And I'd venture to say all this was going on around the same time I was sneaking into the living room late evenings on the weekends to watch scrambled porn. Now, scrambled porn was cable porn that even if you didn't pay for it, still kind of came on. It was mostly interference in snow. You would stare at it till it cleared for a millisecond or so. Then a woman would let out a low 30, oh, oh. Then a flash of feminine flesh would ghostly show, and I didn't know if it was an elbow, arm, toe, or tit, but somewhere in my young, fevered mind, I just knew I wanted to hump it. But look, bump it. Let's skip to this one week in school that made all the boys sit next to one another. I watched this old movie with a woman who was old enough by now to be someone's great-great-grandmother, but here in her youth, she didn't have the common sense to make her lover use a rubber. And she had since uncovered and discovered she'd picked up her piece simplex one through six. 
Now, you can forget Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Halloween. This is by far the scariest thing my young eyes had ever seen. She seemed to have white, crusty cauliflower for lips and her privates nestling just between her hips looked like a bleeding, boiling, festering oil slick. It was nasty. One kid passed out. Another just got sick. One kid cursed his own ass out for his own wanton wickedness and promised to never use his never-been-used tricks. After a couple of views, we all vowed that we'd choose to exclude ourselves from sex. We'd become monks next month. Yes, just forget it. But by lunch, we were trying to hunch the girls and play hide-and-go-get-it, and that's just how it goes. So now I'm staring at my father's. He supposes to lecture on the sexual lexicon, but... Little does he know it is me who's about to get his lecture on. All kids want to impress their parents, so I spoke with hubris about the pubis and the mons veneris, about the labia and way that the pubic hair is protection, about erections, when and where it's appropriate to display affections, the clitoris, the uterus, the ratio of fellatio, ingestion, the ejection, baby boy or girl, epidural, C-section, foreskin, foreplay, condoms. Any questions? Now he's staring at me, and I'm guessing I've impressed him. Then he spoke sparingly, and here began the lesson. He said, listen, this is something they'll never teach you in school. He said, this is the talk that all black men have with their sons. He said, son, here are the rules. He said, the police will pull you over when and wherever they choose. Hang your hands out the windows and make no sudden moves. Never run from them. Their bullets are faster, and then they are against you. Never run to them. Their laws are slower, and then they are against you. They hate black faces like an angry minstrel will shoot you in the back during a chase into the blood and pain scene minstrel. Keep a cigar box filled with bell beneath your bed for the night that your wife has to come and get you and know that you are viewed as a fool, as disposable, as opposable, as minuscule. And if you ever have a child, you will look with anger while you deliver to him the same speech I have just given you. And that's something as a black man they'll never teach you in school. Then he stood up from his stool and left as slowly as he came. He paused by the door and said, oh, and for sure, use a condom and don't bring home nothing. We got a name. I sat there staring at the floor with a look I just can't explain, knowing I'd have to come to grips with this, live, exist and persist with this and know that my real life was scarier than any old flick with a woman with herpes simplex one through six. My name is Rita Leslie, and uh, this is a piece that I wrote for the very first Blue Stockings. And oddly enough, I uh, co-produce that show now, so it's kind of fun to, you know, see that I was on it and presented it. Um, this is about a woman moving um, away from everything that she knows and getting used to a completely different environment at um, a new job. It's called Blocked. Leggings are pants because I look good in them. They are my best feature and I'll wear them until my legs begin to atrophy and I finally turn into the mermaid I was meant to be. They're ridiculously comfortable and I'll likely be buried in them. You know what's not comfortable? Minimizers made of medieval Valerian steel. Moving to a place where no one knows your story and you have the option to change the narrative should be a required life experience. 
Las Vegas is the place you date but never marry. And it's only a matter of time before General Electric realizes they're playing fast and loose with the power grid and people are forced to gamble by candlelight again, like Rasputin. What? He had an addictive personality. Working at a PR firm sounds glamorous to people whose favorite character was Samantha on Sex and the City. It's a cutthroat female-dominated industry. So cut to when we clog up the plumbing in mass because we're all on our periods at the same time. Yeah, it's just as ridiculous as it sounds. PR is the awkward cousin of advertising. You know, the cousins that talk too close and hug too tight. Mm-hmm, that's us. We lie like rugs. We spin stories, we bend truths, and decide what's need to know and what isn't. Curating reality, as my boss likes to call it. Public relations is like being a surgeon. Every day that someone doesn't die because of gross negligence is a win-win. It wasn't unusual to see a gaggle of women dressed to the nines, donning a mix of severe buns, fancy blowouts, red bottoms, pencil skirts, and Ely Tahari blouses, eating leftover tiramisu while hovered over a stack of gossip mags and cackling as if they had just in that very moment become unhinged, not unlike an elegant murder of crows. They've definitely dropped more than a few hints about their disapproval of my appearance. So what? Target is my Nordstrom, sue me. Just because my priorities require the steady acquisition of shrooms and Madewell boots doesn't make me any less responsible. I mean, can I live? Damn. Besides, bullying doesn't work on weird people anyway. We tend to lean into that shit pretty early. You learn so much about yourself when you're the main source of your own entertainment. It turns out uncontrollable sobbing is still frowned upon in public spaces, unless you're a newborn or anyone related to Donald Trump. As an only child, you learn how to entertain yourself. Parents never had any interest in helping you fix the swiveled neck piece on your Barbie. It was through sheer ingenuity alone when you finally decided to just smash her head all the way down on her neck so that she'd have a new lease on life as special needs Barbie. This was also about the time she broke up with Ken, realizing things had become routine and slightly codependent. I could never quite get the hang and vibe of the city, though. My only solace was coming home to dish with my bestie about those wretched cows at work. Nothing says too damn comfortable like listening to the drunken marathon horse pissing of your friend while on the phone at three in the morning. The mute button is for new people in conference calls. Egyptian cotton sheets and an impressive assortment of no less than 25 pillows was my version of self-care. I was cocooned in a tempur body pillow with memory foam for that back-to-the-womb feeling. They say that two hot showers are a loneliness indicator. My skin grafts tell the story. But truth be told, it's hard to make friends as you get older. People are hesitant and generally less receptive overall. Whatevs. When your feelings are a food group, who needs friends? Am I right? The fools who said nothing tastes as good as skinny feels have apparently never challenged their digestive system to break down and process half a pound of bison and garlic parm wedges in less than 10 minutes. I felt fine, you know, uh, until my chest got tight and my left arm began to tingle, which all happened on Google Hangout, mind you. So no one was actually able to verify the burning toast smell death knell thing. 
but it's like I always say, if you can't have a mini stroke without judgment, they're not your real friends anyway. Work had become unmanageable and masking my contempt for my coworkers was nearly impossible. So it wasn't much of a surprise when I revealed that I had put in for a transfer back to the Beast Coast. They insisted on throwing me a going away dinner that I really didn't want and things begin to really Tetris from there. Fast forward a couple of weeks. We go out, we had just ordered our second round of drinks when Jackie and Heather decided to take a selfie. Seems fine with a bedazzled selfie stick, no less. Using the hashtag PR princesses, Vegas, Tasha abandoning us. Oh no, she didn't. Kale crisps, Prosecco bitch. They then tried to upload and tag me and said photo. That's when shit got real different. Here's a little backstory. Jackie's sleeping with a guy from IT and basically walks around like she's Steve fucking Wozniak. So she was extra determined to get to the bottom of why the pictures wouldn't post. After diagnosing Heather as quote unquote white girl wasted and snatching the phone from her manicure yet woefully inept hands, the slow horrific realization that I had blocked them all on social media became apparent. An avalanche of hushed disappointment swept through the crowd like wildfire, unbridled, untamed, and irreversible, yet wholly necessary. My mortification was exacerbated by the fact that I have horrible secondhand embarrassment, which was really firsthand, secondhand, firsthand, whatever. I tend to laugh when I get nervous, and this was no exception. I laughed like no one was watching. Y'all, what I'm saying is my inside voice lives outside, chained to a fence, surviving off a daily diet of demented Scheidenfraud. I am loud. I laugh like no one is judging, and my whisper yell is the stuff of legend. Ultimately, Las Vegas is just kidding. You go there to make ill-advised life choices. Comfort isn't stagnant. And sometimes it's just relative to the nearest bed, bathroom, and exit. There are so many shows with pieces just like the ones you heard being produced all over Atlanta. Take some time, go see a show, and experience one of these pieces live.